I'm a bus driver. Yeah, my work is a checker. I'm a tube driver. I've been a private hire for the last four years. I work at a Weatherspoons. Hello, I'm Mark Thomas, and welcome to Keywords, the podcast that talks to key workers about their experiences through the pandemic. Episode four: Holding on. I spent the first five months of lockdown looking after my 86-year-old mum in a two-bedroom flat in South London, and much as I love her, there is a reason that offspring depart the nest, and it is not procreation nor independence, it is sanity. I was probably about a month away from putting a skeleton in a rocking chair and opening the Bates Motel. Of course, This was just as applicable to my mum, who, during a moment of raised voices, stabbed me with a bread knife. It was an accident. She had meant to grab the carver. Lockdown has been hard on all of us. Even the ruling class. Nah, I'm kidding. They actually made stack loads of money, as they always do in a crisis. A motley crew of about 10 of the richest men in the world amassed enough during the pandemic alone to buy vaccines for the entire world waiting to hear if that happens. Meanwhile, the rest of us held on. Life changed from living to coping. From nowhere, we suddenly had to stop being with people. We stopped life with friends and family, the births, deaths, marriages, parties, the family rituals that helped us through. While some were ordered to stay at home, for those on the front line, going to work offered them some stability in all this chaos. Mike works in the ticket office at a railway station. In a lot of cases, it was something tangible that people could hold on to. You know, at least it was there, at least it was a constant. And I think in some ways, that's what the pandemic's done as much as anything. It's taken away any sort of certainty for people. We have lived with political and financial uncertainty, be it austerity or the gig economy or Theresa May's stasis and Brexit. Politicians could battle that uncertainty with rousing speeches or promises or the odd royal event. You couldn't do that with a -a once-in-a-lifetime pandemic. The virus didn't appear to react to being called Project Fear, insulting headlines, or indeed flag-waving. It appeared not to know its place at all, and the trouble Johnson quickly found was that you couldn't negotiate with the virus. You couldn't even lie to it. He tried his best Etonian master of the universe, born to rule bluster, and ended up in hospital, and then breathlessly clapping on his doorstep like an animated waxwork of a confused white supremacist sea lion. In the face of a global crisis, the UK did what it does best, panic and go shopping. It's a bit of a national joke about how we behave during the sales, and it became a bit of prole-baiting fun to laugh at people scrapping over the opening of a new Primark. But it isn't much fun to work in places like that. Jackie works in a supermarket and she had to hold on in the face of, well, what looked like to be a glimpse of what the apocalypse might look like. Everybody was coming in looking for toilet rolls, pasta, hand sanitizer. They were shouting because there was no toilet rolls. People were built buying. Um, it got that bad, they were buying baby milk in case we ran out of milk. It was like if you were never going to get them back in stock. You would get customers fighting in the aisle over the last pack of toilet roll, customers fighting for a hand soap. You would get customers grabbing a toilet roll out of another customer's hand. And it was horrible, to be quite honest. Why is folk acting in this way? Do you feel like 
they were going to kick off and they're going to kick off at you when they came to the checkout because that person in front had got the extra toilet roll or that person in front had got a hand soap. It was so hard. I think working through, it was really stressful. While telling us to keep calm, the government was going on its own panic buying spree to get PPE, which you had less chance of getting than pasta, toilet roll and hand sanitizer combined. It was a perfect storm. Years of austerity, cuts and running down public services combined with a stunningly careless lack of planning that only an Eton education could really prepare you for, leaving key workers and those in care exposed. Carmen describes the difficulties. So accessing PPE for people delivered in support as personal assistant was a real struggle. I think it's been really clear that social care workers had been left a little bit neglected and a lot of resources and a lot of focus went on NHS workers, <laughs> leaving social care workers in limbo in terms of PPE and in terms of proper guidelines to, to work safely. Mary works in a care home. For her, holding on to her job, her residence health and her own safety meant organising her own makeshift PPE. I made a facial with a plastic and I put a, a elastic from my leggings. And, you know, I have a laminated machine and then I put that in the laminated machine and I start to help other carers and I give to them because we need to protect and the nursing homes didn't have uh, anything to give to us. I opened two holes and I put an elastic from my leggings. That is That was my PPE in that time. You can chant the words protective ring as much as you like, but the reality is that carers were literally holding on with a bit of knicker elastic. Jackie also works as a carer, and she explains how when the PPE was supplied, it was almost begrudging. You know, we had to sign it out whenever we were to get in a box of gloves or whatever, which was ridiculous, as if we were all going to go on a rampage stealing all the stock, I don't know. Where's the magic money tree? They shout in that hilarious way Tories do whenever public money is being spent on the public instead of their mates. Matt Hancock's pub landlord won £30 million worth of contracts to produce medical equipment despite him having zero, nil, none, not a jot of experiencing in producing uh, medical equipment, which may explain why his products were recalled having been found faulty and not fit for purpose for being mm, medical equipment. In a move that had the Guild of Satirists threatening legal action, Hancock's ex-landlord had a medically sterile working area required in the manufacturing process made by a bouncy castle company. That's right. A bouncy castle company made a biosecure workspace. Mate, I would say go back to the pub business, but I don't think you should be near alcohol. It used to take three years of training and a written exam to work in government procurement. Now it's a case of, I've watched Flubber twice, can I do the science? And this is all supposed to be the private sector doing the job much better. Amit, a firefighter, knows only too well the effects of having his service cut back. There was little contingency built into any system. Every system was already operating at its kind of maximum capacity. 
And it was only down to sort of sheer luck, people on the front line stepping up, a little bit of jiggling and really sort of for, fortune. You know, I, I, I don't like to use the term fortune, but it was, it was sort of fortune that a lot of these services didn't collapse. There was no ability to increase capacity, you know. Outsourcing and austerity has seen all public services decimated to a level where it is only the professionalism and determination of the staff that holds it all together. Jack is a teacher. We don't know how the current sort of year 10 are going to be assessed, what's going to happen at the end of it. You know, we've got the kind of the, the uncertainty around what's happening with year 11, we don't know what's happening with year 10. It's honestly, we've not really had a lot of direction from, uh, from the government. It's kind of like things being kind of put on sort of teachers to do, so we'll be accountable for it. The workload was absolutely massive. Um, and again, and, but the, the positive things perhaps about sort of the job, the human interaction, um, the creativity, those sorts of things, those were very, very much kind of uh, eroded. It's one of those jobs, I think, sort of working, working in schools with young people that while the lows are quite, you know, quite bad, you know, kind of the pressure, the stress and so on, the highs are fantastic. And also you've got that sense that, you know, you do feel that you are you know, making a difference and there are positives. But I think with lockdown, it just felt that a lot of those positives were, you know, weren't there anymore. For Gina, a single mum and teacher, along with the parents of 800,000 children self-isolating this week, juggling work and looking after the kids is not easy. But the reality is, as a four-year-old, I I can't send him to do, you know, arts and crafts by himself or do his own remote learning by himself. So when I'm teaching, he needs to be in front of the TV or next to me, you know, just so I know he's safe, you know. I don't know how I did it, but that, that was the reality for a while and for a lot of people. The reality of teaching online for Robin echoed something Jack said earlier. Without the highs, the lows seemed very, very low. Here he describes his work environment and the impact it had on him. I taught in, in a spare room, very, quite a small spare room, um, but lucky to have a spare room. Um, it, felt, it felt like my jail uh, for, for about uh, eight weeks there. Um, I'm, I'm definitely glad to be back in the classroom. It's not the same as like, when you've worked all day and you've been engaging in, in uh, positive relationships, building children up to, to, to be politicians of the future or, or, or imparting a passion of, of, of how they can be active citizens in the world or thinking about them, their mental health and how they're going to have really good relationships. That kind of loss, I guess I was in... Uh, grieving a little bit for that loss of of not being able to do that a bit I guess is what I'm trying to say. Those who can teach and those who can't work for Ofsted and those who can't work for Ofsted work for Gavin Williamson and those who can't work for Gavin Williamson are Gavin Williamson. Work was the one thing that key workers had or at least they thought they might have had it at the beginning of the pandemic but the gig economy did for that. Jamie worked in hospitality in a hotel, and this is what happened to him. We were all put on furlough and told by our manager that um, just kind of like take it easy. You've got a job when you come back, like just relax just now. I mean, obviously no one knew how this was going to go. Like pretty much a year later, we're still in the same situation. We were told it was going to be fine pretty much by 
quite a few people, even the general manager, he said in a, in a note that was sent out just before we went on lockdown that no one was being laid off after we got those messages saying everything's fine like a month later we had a, a zoom call with the general manager and it was he said um that there was going to be redundancies made and then he terminated the call didn't take any questions so everyone was just kind of left hanging like oh my god what's, what's happening <laughs> like that's when the the worry obviously started to set in you just you didn't really expect it especially with the the size of the company. Heads of industry like to imagine themselves as superstars, magical queen bees flitting from business to business, spraying sparkle dust of brilliance onto the balance sheet. The reality is Dido Harding, Chris Grayling's twin sister in the Tory genealogical family tree of fuck-ups. The reality is working people's lives. And in the rush to lock down the country and mothball the economy, People were worrying about paying the bills, losing jobs and home, the instability. It felt like the 1980s all over again. Mike is a professional driver. I was a black cab driver. It disappeared, literally disappeared overnight. Um, as a taxi driver, you know, those working out of Heathrow, as, as I did at the time, you know, the business, business um, users stopped coming in. The tourists certainly didn't come and. You know, the guys out there doing 16, 20 hours for a job, for one job. I had the Indeed app and I applied for 329 jobs. All driving, you know, all driving because that's, you know, I'm a fat old man. That's all I know. And I got six responses. Four of the responses were thanks, but no thanks. Of the two positive responses, one of them was from Amazon looking for drivers, a job which he took. After the outlay of hiring the van, the insurance and the petrol, the company would let him know his rotor on a day-by-day basis. They would send a WhatsApp, WhatsApp message to the people who they'd want to work the next day. Um, and if you weren't on the list, you weren't working. Unless someone on that list didn't want to go to work. And then they'll give you a call and say, do you want to work tomorrow? I couldn't get enough days to make, make a living out of it. I asked Mike if he had time for a lunch break. No. Of course not. If you have, if you've got time, if you've got time for a lunch break, you're not doing the job right. I didn't eat. Um, I, I, I used to take um, three, two or three two-liter bottles of water with me, juice or whatever, um, squash, and um, that was me until I got home. Did he have time for a toilet break? How did he hold on? You get a bottle and do it in the bottle. Take it home with you. Mike was not the only one bottling it. A whole layer of management managed to stay at home and attempt to wish the situation away. Amy works in hospitality and found herself suddenly promoted above her salary. Thinking about um, kind of the systems that were in place in general worker safety. Our general manager was would text us in the morning and say, I'm working from home today. If you need anything, let me know. And then not answer his phone. My team had questions and there was no one to support us, no one to lead us from the front. Today, it is the footballers who are the moral and political leaders, while politicians lead the booing from the stands. From day one, Johnson was missing in action, either in a fridge or a technology lesson, but definitely not offering leadership. Populists cannot lead, especially in times of crisis. All they can do is echo our basest bigotries and blame someone we don't like for our misfortunes. Johnson is an immoral, destructive narcissist. Imagine a really needy black hole who just wants to implode the entire galaxy 
and get your approval. It is remarkable that in the middle of a global crisis, a government has decided not to govern, not to lead, not to inform, but throw the responsibility onto every individual in the country. It's as if Public Health England was run by Iron Rand. Patrick is a tube driver, and like Amy, he had to take the fight to the so-called leaders. Well, I'm a health and safety rep, so we had sort of battles from day one, you know, uh, what we wanted, what they wanted to provide, what they said the government felt we should do, etc. Um, so we've had battles over everything, uh, from masks, to hand sanitizer, to um, you know, people not being penalised if they're 30 seconds late picking up a train because they're taking a bit of extra time washing their hands or, you know, we, we, literally everything we've had battles over. You could be forgiven for thinking that being 30 seconds late to make sure you and your colleagues were safe was an acceptable bending of the timetable, given that for frontline key workers, the potential risks they faced were as real as their fear of them. This is Jackie who you heard earlier, who works in care homes. Everybody was upset, frightened, you know, frightened of catching it, frightened of the residents getting it, being told it's not a question of, you know, if, it's when it's going to happen. For Carlos, a tube driver, the fear came from having to go to work and living with a partner who was clinically vulnerable. <laughs> I couldn't possibly put my work in front of her life. I mean, that's what we were talking about. I'm talking about meeting people at work who are not as careful as me because maybe they don't have to be. And I'm bringing it home. And even if I didn't bring it home and she happened to catch it somehow, how would I know whether I'd given it her or not? I, I could not live with that. In order to reduce potential infection, Carlos decided he should try and avoid as many workmates as possible. Yeah, it was really tough. And I, I ended up spending my meal breaks in my car, which, you know, is... When you're driving a train on your own for eight hours a day, that little personal connection with someone does, you know, keeps you mentally active and, you know, because you're very, very isolated in that job. Um, so that has always been a relief for me. You know, you, you break time, chat with your mates and all the rest of it. It seemed that so many of us were so scared and so many of us were just about keeping it all together. For some key workers, though, they were not so lucky. Here, an anonymous worker at an Amazon warehouse described what happened to him. He has long COVID. I was admitted to hospital with temperature of 41, very low oxygen levels, pneumonia with COVID. 39 days, 17 of them in ICU. I remember asking the sister what my outlook like. She just turned around and said, look, if you're tired, go to sleep. Your body needs to recover. And that scared the living daylights out of me. For the first nine days, I don't remember. I thought I'd only been in there about three days when I got told it was my 10th day. The chap next in the bed next to me, he was talking one day. They tubed him the next. About three days later, he passed away. For the first couple of days I was in ICU, the machines opposite me, during the day they looked normal. At night, when it started to get dark, the right-hand column looked like the Grim Reaper. 
my mind was playing tricks on me. I've got blood clots on the lungs, an enlarged vessel in the heart. I've got swelling from, in, from my knees down, including my feet. I've got pains in my joints and my thumbs, shortness of breath, still not sleeping as much as I should do. How old are you, Robert, if you don't mind me asking? 49 this year. You're a young man. Yeah. COVID doesn't care how old you are. It'll just cripple you or kill you. As I know of, there's, at the time, about 30 people who had caught it, been sent home, and they got told to isolate. But at work, we never found out how many and what department people have caught it. It was only because the people themselves messaged the work colleagues they were with, telling them to get isolated. That's what Amazon are like. They'll keep you there as long as possible. Amazon increased their turnover by 51% during lockdown, and part of the way that turnover was generated was the company's ability to utilise technology. The company's founder is in fact on the verge of being shot into space in a zero-gravity territorial pissing contest with Elon Musk to try and reach Mars. Yet they cannot organise a WhatsApp group. Caitlin works in hospitality, and here she talks of the fear and panic she felt going back to work. I had COVID in November and I was quite unwell. Um, like my doctor diagnosed me with long COVID. Um, so I'm coming out the other end of it. Yeah, it was. It was really nerve-wracking. So like going back to work um, was also really kind of, like, so just kind of going autopilot of what I'm used to doing, but in the back of my head, just like, like struggling to breathe um, and just sort of, yeah, just being, being genuinely, genuinely scared. Um, but knowing that you can't I, can't, I couldn't have stayed in my house any longer. Like there was nothing I could do. So we are about to unlock. We will find out if we have held on. While the virus creates more variants than a televised talent show, each one remarkably similar to the last, yet strangely worse. There were some who could not hold on. And for those, I hope there is a public inquiry sooner rather than later. We have got this far with community support, unions, safety reps, friends, family, our own ingenuity, determination and the grim reality that this is at least better than some of the other options. For Roy, a firefighter, there was one thing that helped. And obviously there's a bit of a graveyard humour going on and I learned really, really quickly that that is, comedy is the best way to deal with it. Was it comedy's tragedy plus time and it or whatever it is it does it really does work it really is the best best tonic sometimes there's some things you can't joke about try having taken this thing out of, out of a out of quite a stressful situation is helpful that's for me where humor comes into fire service and, and comes into the army comes into paramedics coming comes into any traumatic job at some point you have to start talking about it and normally for me you start talking about it when someone makes a joke about it. And that breaks the barrier and makes it makes it so you can start talking about it. And it sort of takes the taboo out of the subject 
and then you can get into a more serious conversation and then you can start breaking the incident down. I agree with Roy. And I like to think that my contribution to taking the piss out of the government, Johnson and Hancock, is the start of a really serious conversation, preferably in some kind of pandemic crimes tribunal, a court case, or perhaps even an appearance in The Hague. The last word should go to Rachel, a teacher who describes how children managed to cope with online learning and find a way of processing what was happening. So they would mute you while you were teaching. They would kick each other out of meetings. They'd, they started their own meetings and they were like having little house parties virtually at like midnight on the first day. They were all just dialing each other into meetings. Um, they figured out how to use emojis and gifts. So the chat was just full of poo emojis and stupid stuff like that, which, you know, it's all very funny when you're 10, but it's not when you're 40 something and you're trying to teach a lesson. <laughs> I hope you'll join me next week. Till then, goodbye. Keywords is recorded, written and narrated by Mark Thomas. The series producer is Susan McNicholas. The sound editor, Helen Atkinson. It is designed by Greg Matthews, PR by Kim Manning-Cooper and Christine DeLeon. Thanks for all the trade unions from branch level to national level who have supported this podcast. A full list of supporters is available on the Mark Thomas Info website. Till next week, goodbye. It's been great talking to you as well. It's great to have somebody actually listening to it. Thank you, Mark. It was a pleasure for me too. No problem. I'll speak to you soon, Mark. And just, yeah, feel free to uh, reach out if there's anything else you need to know. Okay, then. Thanks a lot, Mark. You take care.